Today is Sunday, <clears throat> January 23rd, 2022. Um, I'm going to be uh, talking this morning uh, about a topic. It's hard to, <laughs> I still don't really know exactly what, I, what to call it, but it's something I got onto, um, went down a rabbit hole, and uh, can say it's the whole question of restlessness and attention. <clears throat> I uh, kind of revisiting this topic. We've talked about it before, but it is something that's uh, I've seen in the term intensive uh, when people talk about the commitments that they're making and they make reports on how they've done and whatnot. This whole issue of uh, having our minds hijacked by either things that we have to do or devices we feel we need to carry with us. Uh, it's, a, it's a problem. It's a <clears throat> something that doesn't go away simply by thinking about it and making a few efforts. Uh, it's something that everybody in this age is struggling with in one way or another, struggling with or succumbing to. And it seems, uh, reading uh, what people say, so-called <laughs> experts, um, that it's getting worse, that uh, people's attention spans are shorter than they were before, although it's always suspect when uh, figures are thrown out and uh, knowing exactly what's been measured and, and what the situation really is. But it, it does seem like just looking at myself and other people reporting how, how they are, it's harder to read a long book, and uh, <clears throat> I have a little less patience than, uh, than I had, it seems like I had in the past. I think with every new technology that comes down the pike, um, going back to the advent, say, of reading, uh, people have predicted that humanity was going to fall apart and people are resilient and they're adaptable. And uh, all those people walking around with their noses in their phones, maybe they'll be okay. Um, <clears throat> but I don't think that's sure by any means. It is definitely the case that more people these days are reporting anxiety and depression uh, than just five or ten years ago. Um, and there's a spike in mental health uh, crises suicides and suicide attempts and uh, <clears throat> I think it's safe to say that civilization still has some discontents. I got onto this, uh, I was sitting outside Wegmans in the car waiting for my wife, for Chris, uh, to pick up a few items and uh, <clears throat> come on out and I was parked there by the employee door so I saw all the kids who work at Wegmans coming in and going out. And remarkably, there was not a single one who did not walk in and out with their phone out in their hand and their neck bent and looking at it. And it just struck me, this is so different. Um, <clears throat> you know, maybe for somebody who's younger and, you know, just grew up with it, it's, it's not such a striking thing, but I just sort of can't get over how quickly people get wrapped up and uh, wonder uh, 
what the uh, what the outcome will be, and also wonder what we can do um, to take care of ourselves, to guard our own minds, and to uh, to progress on this path as well as we can. <clears throat> a short time later, I uh, got on my phone a link that my daughter sent me to a podcast, and uh, that sort of blended together with my previous ruminations, and uh, I'm going to share some of the writings by the people who are on that podcast. Their name is, names are Benjamin and Jenna Story. Uh, they're both academics teachers at Furman University. <clears throat> I think they're on the conservative end of the spectrum. I get the idea, looking at the various talks they've given, places like the American Enterprise Institute and interviews with the Wall Street Journal, um, they're sort of, <clears throat> uh, in a lot of ways, very conservative. But uh, that conservatism sometimes points out some things that are really, really helpful for us to understand. And I think it's quite legitimate to have some criticisms of the way society is set up, <clears throat> criticisms that uh, we would have as well. So uh, I just want to dip in and share with you some of what uh, I read. The other reason I was sort of a sucker for them is that they base a lot of what they're teaching on uh, some of the uh, foremost French philosophers, starting with Montaigne, and then to Pascal, Tocqueville, and Rousseau. People will remember Pascal. He's the one who famously said, all the problems of mankind, of man, come from his inability to sit quietly in a room alone. I think I've tried that one out more than once. <clears throat> So I'm going to start off reading from um, an article written by the two of them, Benjamin and Jenna Story, uh, and the title is The Pause on Learning to Live Well with Time. <clears throat> they gave this, or they wrote this, I guess, for the Institute for Classical Education. And they're commenting about uh, life in the pandemic says, to sit still at home. This was one of the many challenges brought by the pandemic. A society whose equilibrium depended on perpetual motion suddenly had to stop. People trained for unrelenting activity were left to spin their wheels for the indefinite future. <clears throat> for those fortunate enough to stay healthy and keep their jobs, the pause also brought a strange, if somewhat guilty, relief. The cancellation of the seemingly urgent activities began to bother us less and less. Lunch with the kids proved more satisfying than meetings with coworkers. Planting a garden brought gratifications that adding lines to the resume never did. <clears throat> of course, this article is a line on their resume. Having put the mundane insanity of our lives on pause, we were given a chance to reflect on how we were spending our days. Many of us said, I'm not going to let myself live like that again. <clears throat> and then, without quite thinking about it, 
We acquiesced to the annihilation of our newfound stillness. We allowed the virtual world to colonize the time the pause had opened up. We moved meetings online. We turned seminars into webinars. We wrote more emails. Lunch with the children got canceled. The weeds retook the garden. <clears throat> A lot of us have noticed that, that progression. They go on, shut down life became just as busy, if not as satisfying, as life before the virus. Why do we flee the stillness we know we need? And then she quotes from Pascal, the great French polymath, man's unhappiness arises from one thing alone, that he cannot remain quietly in his room. <clears throat> Pascal suggests that we flee stillness because the pressure of sitting, the pressure of sitting still, compels us to reflect on ourselves. When we do so, we find ourselves facing the unedifying spectacle of lives every minute of which has been reduced to an instrument, a resource we burn up in pursuit of an ever-shifting set of goals, many of which we don't remember why we sought in the first place. <clears throat> I'm uh, a little reluctant to accept that completely. I think our impulse to free stillness kicks in before we've even thought about what a mess our lives are. It's not like people have some downtime and then they immediately begin reflecting. What happens is we have downtime and then some uh, well-formed habit clicks in and we have suddenly the impulse to pick up the phone or to ruminate about some problem that's been bothering us or reflect on this or that. Um, and sometimes it is reflecting on ourselves and uh, feeling uncomfortable. But the fact of the matter is, there is that impulse. The minute there's nothing else going on to do something, to break the stillness. <clears throat> there's a story I told once before, but it's a favorite story, so here we go again. A guy walks into a Starbucks, and uh, this person, for whatever reason, doesn't have a phone or an iPad or a laptop, and he just sits at the table drinking his coffee like a psychopath. You feel a little like a psychopath if you're just sitting. Um, and <clears throat> it's uh, something you can get used to. It actually can feel pretty good. Um, but yeah, we all feel the sort of social pressure to be doing something. I remember when I quit smoking long ago, my whole question is, what do I do with my hands? <clears throat> they go on. We treat meals as refueling stops, necessary to permit the continuation of work, best kept brief. We treat work as a set of tasks we must get through to move on to other things, which themselves come to seem but more chores. Even the commemoration of our deepest attachments is often reduced to a list of reminders. Call mom, book the bounce house for the birthday party, buy flowers for Valentine's Day. Realizing that we have reduced our lives in this way depresses us. <clears throat> if we're lucky enough to realize
<clears throat> if it does depress us, that's probably a good thing. Until we realize how we're suffering, we're not going to find a way to change. <clears throat> and they go on to avoid the sad spectacle of our restlessness that confronts when we sit still, we throw ourselves back into the whirl of chores where we find at least the momentary solace of checking things off. That's such a fascinating thing. I make, I make lists of things to do. <clears throat> Seems an intelligent way to go about getting done what must be done. But there is that little squirt of dopamine when you check that box off. And I always make little boxes, and I always use checks. And it's, you know, <laughs> it's just a little addiction. It's a little uh, habit. And uh, one of the things you realize when you think about habits is that we are, whether we want to be or not, we are creatures of habit. We do things because we've done them before. And once a pattern is laid down, it stays with us. <clears throat> what we need to do is to reflect on what are the habits I've cultivated and do they move me towards where I want to go? Because we can have habits that are great. I have a habit of doing zazen when I wake up in the morning. I like that habit. Um, there, there are many, many more. Um, having the habit of when we're upset, scanning the body, feeling what's going on. Uh, having the habit of looking people in the eye, seeing what's going on with them. having the habit of noticing when someone needs help, stepping up. <clears throat> but turning back here, find at least the momentary solace of checking things off. Strangely, the awareness that one is instrumentalizing all one's time can seduce one into instrumentalizing one's time still more completely. As Pascal knew, the charm of busyness is that it distracts us from existential emptiness. That existential emptiness is our friend. It's exactly what we need. need to find our home there, uh, sitting quietly in a room alone. There's a, something I read a while back that uh, Henry Miller wrote, the author. Most people are familiar with him. <clears throat> I think he was censored for quite a while. says this, to be silent the whole day long, see no newspaper, hear no radio, listen to no gossip, be thoroughly and completely lazy, thoroughly and completely indifferent to the fate of the world is the finest medicine a man can give himself. It's a break not only from constant doing, but from constant compulsion, uh, 
from I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to think this way. It's giving ourselves the freedom to let time stretch out in front of us is good medicine. We'll say more about that as we go along. They continue, we tell ourselves we will rest when our work is finished, but that completion never comes. And it never comes because we're such poor estimators of how things will work out. People really don't know. They don't know what's going to make them happy and what's going to make them unhappy. And everybody underestimates how much work is involved in any project that they take on or how soon they'll finish. I learned this lesson when I was a painting contractor because when you misestimate there, <clears throat> you don't get paid enough. Gradually, I realized, yeah, figure out how long it's going to take and then double it, and you might be close to what it actually is. <clears throat> we tell ourselves we will rest when our work is finished, but that completion never comes. Urgency is recurrent, expansive, and invasive. It must be assigned a limit, for it will not generate one on its own. People the world over have known this and have made pausing a requirement. Institutionalizing it in forms such as the Friday prayers of Muslims or the Sabbath of the Jews. Now, I'm not quite sure where they came up with the phrase Friday prayers of Muslims. As far as I know, and my son converted to Islam when he got married, um, the prayer routine is to actually pray five times a day <clears throat> at sunrise, at noon, in the afternoon, at sunset, and at night. If you go on the, uh, on the internet, you can uh, find the times for any location spelled out to the minute. I think there's some leeway about exactly when you do the prayers, but um, it is. It's a, it's a structure that's built into that kind of life. It serves a really admirable purpose. <clears throat> Same with the Sabbath, whether it be Jews or Christians. It's something that we get with a regular routine of, of Zazen, whether we're here as residents or people living on their own who can set up a structure so helpful. <clears throat> he says, they have contained the urgent by sanctifying a portion of time, requiring, the, requiring themselves to acknowledge the ultimate. In Zen terms, the ultimate, we could put it as to experience directly, to be. To see who we are. They say our commercial and technological society tends to undermine all such obligations in the name of freedom. But the line between being able to work seven days a work week and being compelled to do so quickly disappears. A society that does not grant a pause to everyone, from meat packers and delivery drivers to software engineers and CFOs, is a society that has not truly left slavery behind. Properly remembered, the pause might teach us that the only limits the urgent will recognize are mandatory limits. 
<clears throat> Such obligations alone can accomplish the most essential liberation a mortal being can know, the liberation of time. <clears throat> That's one way of putting it. Um, in several of the articles I looked at, uh, people bring this business up about restructuring society in a way that can help us out, and, and I'm, there is a role for that. Uh, one example I read was in France, it's now illegal for employees to employers to email their employees during non-work hours, <clears throat> protecting the workforce from the constant drip of things to pay attention to and things to do. And that'll help if that happens. Whether we can make it happen or not is another matter. But those limits can also be established by each one of us in our own lives. And that's a more realistic approach, <clears throat> in my humble opinion. So Zazen, which is such a break, stepping out of time, can't just be one more thing to do, and it's easy for it to, to get that way. I, I hear from people, and you know, it's like yoga, and exercise, and Zazen, and uh, not sure which one to do. Um, There's, there's the need to prioritize. There's a need to decide, and this is what I want to do. And maybe for you it won't be Zazen, but for most people here it will be. Um, when we sit, we have to be able to unplug. That's why it's so important to find a quiet place to sit. <clears throat> find a good time when you can do it, when you can be undisturbed. Early in the morning is wonderful. It's, it's also why it's so great to be able to sit at the center. Um, deeply regret that right now in the pandemic, we can't have people coming in and sitting with us. Hopefully that's coming back. It helps to sit with other people. It makes it easier to drop our restlessness. It's one of the reasons why the Zoom sittings that we've been doing have been pretty popular. I know uh, I wouldn't have expected the numbers to stay so high for so long. Obviously, a lot of people are finding that structure really, really helpful. And there are many people now who are sitting, I think, more during the pandemic with Zoom as the wind under their wings, sitting more than they did beforehand. It's a great thing. When you first start to sit, you do run into that restlessness that Pascal points out, that aversion to sitting still. I remember that clearly from my early days. I would especially notice it if I was traveling. It was almost impossible to sit still in a motel or some new place, but <clears throat> that passes. Over time, we develop a taste for a quiet mind. Basically, the only way that we can deal with our penchant for distraction, 
with our <clears throat> habits of running off into busyness or computer screens, phone screens, is to replace that habit with something else. I don't think there's any other good way to work with habits. Uh, as I said before, once, once it's laid down, once we've done it a number of times, it's kind of etched into the brain. All the, the neurological connections are wired up and they're not going to unwire in uh, a year or two. It's one of the things that uh, <clears throat> you learn in AA is for somebody with a drinking problem, you can go for 20 years and when you pick a drink up again, it kicks back in. The roads are all laid down. So the best strategy for anybody who wants to change what they do is to replace what's harmful with uh, what they'd rather be doing. It has to be something that you like. <laughs> if you hate it, it's not going to work. But it can be anything. great area to experiment in. Next time you have an urge, I know one person, uh, their, their one cool trick that habits hate was to just take a sip of water. <clears throat> Go get a glass of water and that just sort of broke the spell. Another really good thing is just to take a breath. <clears throat> one mindful breath. And everything resets. I'm going to take a look at another um, little bit of another article of theirs. Um, the title of it is Hope for the Lost Souls of Liberalism. <laughs> and evidently this was done for the AEI, the, I think it's the American Enterprise Institute. And actually, no, what it is is it's an interview uh, of the two of them, Benjamin and Jenna Story, by somebody named Barton Swaim, who writes for the Wall Street Journal. And he begins by talking about all the trouble liberalism is in, and I'm going to skip over that and uh, get to our two, uh, two philosophers here. He says a little bit about them. Mr. and Mrs. Story, 46 and 45 respectively, teach political philosophy and run the Tocqueville program at Furman University. <clears throat> and apparently... They were spent a year as visiting scholars at the American Enterprise Institute. So he went there and interviewed them. And uh, he mentions that the core of their book is the reflection that educated people in modern liberal democracies are very comfortable with proximate arguments and not at all with ultimate ones. <clears throat> and then he rephrases that. Uh, in other words, the moderns can debate means but not ends. We can talk about how to do things. We can talk about intermediate steps. But there's very little discourse in this country about the highest good, about our ultimate aim. It's easy to lose sight of that when you're a member of a Zen center and you, know, you hear uh, people giving encouragement talks and you have people that you're practicing with. But in society as a whole, people don't talk about that much. And I remember as a parent... 
um, I always felt really diffident about uh, instructing my children. You know, um, I think it was probably a mistake. I think it would have been better to be explicit. Um, <clears throat> but who knows? Who knows? Sometimes the, the things you hear from mom and dad are the very things you want to put aside, find your own way. He goes on, what do they mean by ends? And then he quotes some Mr. Story. <clears throat> I teach Plato's Gorgias. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I think that second G is a hard G. Plato's Gorgias. Socrates is arguing with Callicles about what the best way of life is. And so I will ask my students, what is the best way of life? Just like that. And the standard response is, what are you talking about? <laughs> they look at me as if to say, you can't ask that question. So it is, he thinks, in liberal societies generally. Let's, let's just <clears throat> make clear that by liberal societies, we mean democratic societies, societies that aren't run by an ayatollah or uh, a fascist. <clears throat> I don't think anybody here is going to argue that our way of life is better than a lot of others. But liberal societies do have their problems. <clears throat> says, so it is with liberal societies generally. We're allowed to debate all questions except for the ultimate ones. We're assuming we can't have an answer to these questions without even asking them. In the classroom, he says, both he and his wife try to shift students from a stance of dogmatic skepticism in which they assume before the inquiry begins that you can't ask ultimate questions, to a place of zetetic <laughs> or seeking skepticism. Zetetic means to proceed by inquiry. Maybe it's Socratic, I'm not sure. <clears throat> In which you recognize that despite all your doubts and apprehensions, you have to at least ask questions about God and the good and the nature of the universe. Then he gives a little bit of history, and uh, I'm a sucker for this, having been a history major when I was in college. Uh, and uh, I learned things about the formation of our modern world just reading these guys that I never knew. And it's really, it's kind of helpful, at least I find it that way. So please forgive me for sharing it. <clears throat> he says, liberalism began in the 16th and 17th centuries as a response to the violent political struggles of the Reformation and Counter-Reformation, the so-called wars of religion. And these wars were real wars. People died. People were killed for believing the wrong thing. It's easy for us to forget how intolerant our ancestors were. European philosophers and political leaders sought a political worldview in which a man was able to hold his own views and practice his own religion without reference to the mythology of the dominant culture around him. To oversimplify the ideal, in public he would behave as a loyal citizen, in private he could affirm or deny transubstantiation or decide he cared little either way. <clears throat> something we take for granted now.
But in order to get that, in order to get to that place, we had to take those societal forms away. <clears throat> it's different if you grow up in a deeply religious country. Then it's just in the air you breathe. But for us, the air we breathe is sort of empty of ultimate goals, empty of purpose for many people. And it's probably one of the reasons that there is so much, much restlessness and people find it so hard to turn to what's meaningful. <clears throat> and why it's so important for us to find that in our own life. As, as attractive as the liberal worldview is, the stories think, it has ceased to satisfy. It was designed to solve a different anthropological problem from the ones we're facing. We're different people. We were different people when we came up with our liberal institutions to solve the strife of war and persecution. <clears throat> the political institutions of liberalism, she says, were designed for people who were already strongly committed to churches, localities, professions, and families. But when private lives have broken down, families dissolved, localities less important, religious life absent, liberalism's framework institutions no longer make sense. <clears throat> the Montanian life, which is the life of imminent pleasures, taking pleasure in the things you do, working in the garden, brushing your teeth, various amusements that offer themselves, that kind of life just isn't enough for them. It has no transcendence. They're going to go beyond it. going beyond it begins with as Roshi Kaplow used to say begins with a cry for help when we have the courage to face up to <clears throat> our own shortcomings when we see the need we have a felt need then we have the motive power and we can make changes and things can change for us. <clears throat> we don't even direct the change, just our willingness to sit quietly, bring the attention to our practice, to whatever is in front of us. The atmosphere we swim in changes. Begin to know a joy that's not based on the latest acquisition, the latest award at work. Begin to enjoy ourselves. There's a story of, uh, <clears throat> I think it was Bertrand Russell, at a party back in the early 1900s, I believe, and his hostess came up to him and said, Mr. Russell, I hope you're enjoying yourself. <clears throat> and he said, it's the only thing I am enjoying. 
<laughs> okay, I'm going to dip a little bit into one other article. I think we have time for that. <clears throat> and it starts off like this. She has, done, she has done everything the college has asked of her, only better. The star student of two departments, she has notched impressive summer internships, spent several semesters abroad, founded one club, served as president of another, and collected her five Beta Kappa keys last spring. As graduation approaches, she has come to us to talk about her future. This should be easy. <clears throat> Law school or PhD? For years, she has had her eye on these goals and is now well-positioned for either. But then the options she puts before us begin to diverge. Maybe teaching, plausible. Maybe farming, not so plausible. Maybe a year abroad, perhaps a return home, perhaps more schooling, perhaps an end to all schooling. She wants to do good in the world and speaks passionately about her favorite political causes, but she is also nostalgic and speaks wistfully about family, retreat, and quiet. As she detects the discordance of the possibilities she is contemplating, she's unnerved. The tightness of her face, the finger picking at the plastic tabletop, the skittish darting of her eyes make her look, look less like a very fortunate person choosing from the bountiful banquet she earned the right to enjoy than she does a terminally ill patient choosing from a grim variety of palliatives. She has made the most of her American birthright to pursue happiness wherever it leads, and her very success has left her at a loss. <clears throat> okay, let's question that. She'd been pursuing happiness, or she'd been doing what she's told would, not even told explicitly would bring her happiness, but just what she's expected to do. She's just excelling so easy to do what society expects of us and to measure ourselves on that basis. But when they say her very success has left her for a loss, I hope they're saying it ironically because it's not a success. <clears throat> if you don't know yourself and you have no uh, way of making a difficult decision, how is that success? They sum it up and say years of steady progress have culminated in a strange and restless paralysis. Another student taught us the name for this paralysis. What promising young people like him most fear, he told us, is spending their chips, staking all their carefully cultivated potentiality on any particular and definite way of life. They prefer to hold back as long as possible, remaining in the condition of the stem cell a pluripotent might be that is not exactly anything yet. <clears throat> they make the point, one can double or triple major in college, one cannot attend medical school while working at Goldman Sachs. <laughs> People put so much importance in where they stand in uh, the progression of setting up a normal life, good job, finding the right wife, getting the things that a responsible adult should have. In our society, coming of age means you get to the point where you're supporting yourself and you have those things. 
but that's kind of empty. <clears throat> it isn't the ultimate good. It isn't a life of spaciousness and connection. It's just checking off all the boxes. But the, the, that expectation is so ingrained in our society, that's what's sort of come in and taken the place of a jealous God. That's <clears throat> what we have instead of Marxism or some other uh, fanatical political belief. It's just all sort of loosey-goosey. And it ends up being the treadmill, the endless busyness. It's hard for people to just say, the way I am is okay, I don't measure myself by those standards. <clears throat> and so, to drive the point home, I'm going to turn, wait for it, to Anthony DeMello. Just going to pick it up right here. <clears throat> a small-time businessman, 55 years old, is sipping beer at a bar somewhere, and he's saying, well, look at my classmates. They've really made it. The idiot. What does he mean, they made it? They've got their names in the newspaper. Do you call that making it? One is president of the corporation. The other has become the chief justice. Somebody else has become this or that. Monkeys, all of them. Who determines what it means to be a success? This stupid society. The main preoccupation of society is to keep society sick. And the sooner you realize that, the better. <clears throat> sick, every one of them. They're loony. They're crazy. You become the president of the lunatic asylum, and you're proud of it, even though it means nothing. Being president of a corporation has nothing to do with being a success in life. Having a lot of money has nothing to do with being a success in life. You're a success in life when you wake up. Then you don't have to apologize to anyone. You don't have to explain anything to anyone. You don't give a damn what anybody thinks about you or what anybody says about you. You have no worries. You're happy. That's what I call being a success. <clears throat> having a good job or being famous or having a great reputation has absolutely nothing to do with happiness or success. Nothing. It is totally irrelevant. All he's really worried about is what his children will think about him what the neighbors will think about him, what his wife will think about him. He should have become famous. Our society and culture drill that into our heads day and night. People who made it, made what? Made asses of themselves because they drained all their energy getting something that was worthless. They're frightened and confused. They are puppets like the rest. Look at them strutting across the stage. Look how upset they get if they have a stain on their shirt. Do you call that a success? <clears throat> Look at how frightened they are at the prospect they might not be reelected. Do you call that a success? They are controlled, so manipulated. They are unhappy people. They are miserable people. They don't enjoy life. They are constantly tense and anxious. Do you call that human? And do you know why that happens? Only one reason. They identified with some label. They identified the I with their money, or their job, or their profession. That was their error. Did you hear about the lawyer who was presented with a plumber's bill? He said to the plumber, hey, you're charging me $200 an hour. 
I don't make that kind of money as a lawyer. <clears throat> the plumber said, I didn't make that kind of money when I was a lawyer either. <laughs> you could be a plumber or a lawyer or a businessman or a priest, but that does not affect the essential I. It doesn't affect you. If I change my profession, profession tomorrow, is just like changing my clothes. I am untouched. Are you your clothes? Are you your name? Are you your profession? Stop identifying with them. They come and go. <clears throat> it's so liberating to realize nobody's really keeping score. It's wonderful to do things and become famous. I mean, it's not terrible. It's okay. But that's not the ultimate purpose. It's not what we're here for, <clears throat> to be that kind of success. We really only have this one life. It's a limited life. We have only the certainty of death, the uncertainty of the time of death. <clears throat> we can really take that in, then we find the motivation to work wholeheartedly, not having one foot out the back door, can really pay attention, can really stay present. It's so sad to see people caught up in <clears throat> how they appear to others. But each of us passes away. And then where is all that success? Go back to that Italian proverb, at the end of the game, the queen and the pawn are put back in the same bag. <clears throat> okay, we'll stop here and recite the four vows. <clears throat> 